It's been called a pandemic within a pandemic. The opioid crisis in North America was already dire when COVID-19 hit. And things have only gotten worse from there. And yet, the surge in drug deaths is often a hard sell in the media. Even as the crisis intensifies and the human toll it takes becomes ever more devastating, the issue often goes underreported. It's tough to get attention on 100,000 deaths a year because these are people who use drugs and our society throws them away. My guest on the podcast today is on the front lines of this issue. Reporter Travis Lupik got his start at the Georgia Strait newspaper in Vancouver, covering the city's downtown east side. His first book, Fighting for Space, chronicled the harm reduction movement there. Travis lives in California now, and he's just published his second book, Light Up the Night, America's Overdose Crisis, and the Drug Users Fighting for Survival. It tells the story of two women, both drug activists who've made a huge mark. Travis is here to tell us about these women and how they fit into the broader conversation about this pressing issue, the opioid crisis. That's today on Lean Out. Travis, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to get the chance to connect. You spent the first 10 years of your career at the Georgia Strait newspaper in Vancouver as a general assignment reporter. This is the newspaper in Vancouver. I also got my start. Tell me, how did the opioid crisis become your beat? Well, like you said, I was working as a general assignment reporter at the Georgia Strait, and it must have been 2015, maybe late 2015, that uh, my editor there gave me a story on, on overdoses. They were going up to a point where, you know, we'd, we'd really noticed. So I did one, one article about an increase in overdose deaths in Vancouver. And then a few months later, uh, they kept going up. So there was another one. And within a couple of years, the, the numbers had kept going up and had gone up so sharply that that became my full-time beat, you know, or, organically. My editor was good enough to give me the time for that subject. And over the next five years, I mean, slowly but steadily, um, the crisis became so severe that it got to a point that that was the only thing I was writing about. Wow. And for listeners who may not be familiar with Vancouver and with the downtown east side, paint a picture for us. If people were to walk through the downtown east side, what, what would they see and experience? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's a jarring place. I mean, Vancouver is, you know, a city of glass skyscrapers, one of the wealthiest places on the planet. And right in the middle of it all, or kind of on the edge of the downtown core, is the downtown east side. I mean, really, to be blunt, it's your stereotypical ghetto. I mean, that's what it is. It's a concentration of mental health issues, a concentration of poverty, a concentration of open drug use and addiction. But I want to emphasize also a concentration of just incredible community. You know, I, I lived in the downtown east side, you know, right on the strip, they call it East Hastings for six or seven years. And that, that really is my home. So it's a concentration of problems, but a concentration of solutions too. And that's really the front line, um, the epicenter of Canada's overdose crisis, the downtown east side. And give us some broad strokes here. I mean, how bad has the crisis gotten in terms of numbers? Okay, I'll give you two numbers. From 2001 to 2010, so for that that decade-long period, the average annual number of overdose deaths in British Columbia was 204. And last year, the number of deaths in British Columbia was just over 2,000. So we're talking about a tenfold increase over the past 15 years, and they're really picking up through this overdose crisis the last seven years, a tenfold increase. I mean, it's astonishing. And, and what about the states? Give us the numbers for the states. They're just as bad. 
I just looked these up last night, actually, for a separate project. Through the 1990s, the average number of overdose deaths in the United States was just under 14,000. And in the 12-month period ending May 2021, we were just over 100,000 deaths. So again, almost a tenfold increase right across America. So this is a North America problem. I mean, it, it, cities like the overdose crisis is, is severe in Vancouver. It's really bad, but it's just as bad in Philadelphia. It's even worse in places like West Virginia. I want to talk later on about how this crisis is reflected in the media. But for, for right now, let's let's turn to your work. This is your second book, Light Up the Night. You are focused on two women activists in the drug using community. Incredible stories. I want to read a quote from one of these activists, Jess Tilly. She says, our own narrative has been taken from us. We are not allowed to tell our own authentic story. We have never been allowed to talk. We have never been listened to. We've never been heard. We've been shunned, shamed, and shut down. With this project, you did listen. You did hear. Why was it so important to you to profile these two women? Well, there's, there's sort of two questions there. Why did I want to write a book that amplified the voice of drug users? Because of what you just said. I mean, they are not heard. They are not listened to. And in the context of an overdose crisis, I mean, this is more important than ever. I mean, who knows how to res respond to overdoses, how to solve this crisis better than the people who are dying? These are the people who are using drugs. Why are we not listening to them? They do know this stuff better than anybody else. So the idea there was really to amplify the voices of drug users. I didn't exactly know where I wanted to go with that idea until I met uh, Jess Tilly in Massachusetts and Louise Vincent in North Carolina. That happened on a uh, book tour I was doing through the Northeast for Fighting for Space, my first book. And I, I met one, I met Jess, and I just thought she was one of the most incredible people I'd ever met and learned a little bit of her story and then found out she was even more incredible than I thought when I met her. And then uh, a week later, I met Louise Vincent in Greensboro, North Carolina, and, and she just blew me away. And then I found out that the two of them were working together. And so it was a little bit um, serendipitous in that way. When I heard their stories and, and then found out they were working together, I mean, a narrative emerged and I, I saw, you know, these are the voices that, that I want to amplify. This is a story that the rest of the continent's got to hear. And tell us a little bit about each of these women's stories. Yeah, Jess Tilly, both women struggled a lot in their youth. Jess Tilly had some mental health challenges and was abused as a child and then was abused through her teenage years. And you know, the system that we have built for that sort of thing in North America doesn't work for, for most people. I mean, it's not a great system that we have. Mental health care is absent. And so she was self-medicating with heroin. And that led to a, a period of, addi of addiction. And then it led to an incredible period of activism. I mean, and that's where she's at now. And she's a drug user activist organizing uh, people who use drugs across New England, the U.S. Northeast, uh, using her experience to, to help others, really, and, and help respond to this overdose crisis. Louise Vincent similarly struggled, especially as a teen. She uh, has bipolar that can get quite severe at times. And again, didn't really have any success with the, system, the flawed system that we have. And like, before long, was self-medicating with drugs. And then before long, was addicted. She was lost for a while until she found you know, what we've come to call harm reduction. Things like needle exchange, supervised injection. I mean, you know, this was the light going off Louis Louise's head and she found her mission and, and she's dedicated the rest of her life to advocating uh, for harm reduction. She runs a needle exchange in Greensboro, which you know is not Vancouver. <laughs> North Carolina is a tough place to 
instrument and needle exchange. And now these two women are, are organizing at the national level. You know, they're saying drug users want a voice in Washington. For people who may be new to this whole conversation, can you just give us sort of a broad outline of the harm reduction movement, how it started, where it's at right now, why you think it's such an important movement? Yeah, this was um, really a story in my first book, Fighting for Space. I mean, it's localized. That, that book tells Vancouver's history with harm reduction. But Vancouver's history with harm reduction it is uh, a large chunk of North America's history with harm reduction. So like I said, this is things like needle exchange, where people who use intravenous drugs can obtain clean needles instead of sharing dirty ones on the street. It's supervised injection, where at 119 East Hastings Street in Vancouver, you can sorry, 139 East Hastings Street in Vancouver, you know, you can bring drugs and instead of, you know, someone leering over you in an alley, there'll be a program manager who will greet you with a smile and, and there's nurses there who will catch you in case you overdose. It does not eliminate the harm of doing drugs, but as the title suggests, you know, it, it reduces it. Um, it says that because you use, use drugs, um, we're not going to take that as a reason to, to leave you, you know, in an unhealthy lifestyle. We're going to treat you as a human being. And that's the movement that really gained steam in Vancouver through the 1990s uh, with drug users themselves leading that, that push. It was the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users that really played a huge role in the establishment of North America's first sanctioned supervised injection facility in Insight. And then around the same time in areas like New York, Seattle, uh, largely in response to the HIV crisis of the 80s and 90s, uh, you saw things like needle exchange begin to spread in, in the United States. So it's a really grassroots movement. Um, in most jurisdictions, it is drug users themselves who have led the push. And it's, it's gaining steam in the, in the United States, uh, finally. Um, we're a bit of ahead in Canada, um, but in America, this conversation is kind of being forced on the population by the overdose crisis. And just getting back to these women's stories for a moment, I mean, the the role of trauma really stands out. Um, both of them have had quite traumatic lives and continue to do so with the opioid crisis and losing people that they love. Dr. Gabor Mate in Vancouver, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris in California have talked about this. Talk to me a little bit about the ACE questionnaire and, and what that tells us about addiction. Yeah, I mean, Vancouver's Dr. Gabor Mate is who who shaped my views on addiction. I read his book, Hungry Ghosts in 2009, you know, and it was one of those books that kind of just like pivots the way you, your, your entire perspective on the world. And that's why it was so important for me to emphasize the trauma that took place in, in the past of, of Louise and Jess. When I read Gabor's book, it, you know, I was young and it, for the first time, it made me realize, you know, people who use drugs are not just there for the party. They're not just junkies on the street. Uh, for so many people, the vast majority, I would suggest, uh, these are people who are really struggling with something horrible in their past and are self-medicating. In some ways, a lot of them are, are victims, victims of abuse, victims of police persecution, victims of mental health challenges that go untreated. And so when we when we chase them with police, when we lock them up and we throw them in jail, you know, we're very literally victimizing the victim. We're seeing someone asking for help and we're punishing them. We're locking them up for, for asking for help. And so that's why it was so important for me to... to emphasize the, the the abuse in Jess's life, the mental health challenges in Louise's life. You know, it wasn't to be salacious or anything like that. This is important. This should change the way that we view addiction. You mentioned Dr. Nadine Berg-Harris um, in California. She's really picked up on this and brought this, really pushed this uh, across the United States now. Adverse Childhood Experiences is a 10-point rating system uh, that says, you know, if you've experienced um, a divorce, you get one point. If you've experienced abuse, you get two points. And these statistics have been 
definitively tied to increased risks of addiction. You know, if you score over a seven, I think your chances of, of opiate abuse go up by six or seven times. And not only have the ACEs been tied to addiction and mental health challenges, but physical challenges as well. If you're abused as a child, you have a significantly higher increase of heart problems later in life, of obesity. It was actually obesity that the ACEs, that's where that, that study began, that if you've suffered trauma as a child, you're much more likely to become obese. And so again, it, it's, it kind of pivots how, how I personally look at addiction, that people who, these people are much more susceptible to addiction challenges, but it's not because they just want to party. It's because for so many of them, something difficult happened in their past. And in recent years, there has been a lot of conversation on the war on drugs, a lot of criticism on the war on drugs. I'm thinking about Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream and how that changed things. But in your book, I was surprised to read you say that in some ways, the war on drugs has intensified and that uh, in particular, more women are now being incarcerated. What What's happening with that? Yeah, this was kind of news to me, too, um, because there is this, this narrative that's really taken hold that the war on drugs is softening. Um, in the United States, you have both sides of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, agreeing to lower mandatory minimum sentences for drug possession and that sort of thing. In Canada, we're even talking about decriminalization in progressive jurisdictions like Vancouver. It sounds like the war on drugs is softening, largely in response to the opiate epidemic. Uh, for better or worse, the opiate ep epidemic is perceived as a, a so-called white problem. And that has an effect in, in lawmakers' attitudes. You know, we're still a deeply racist society. And with the opiate epidemic defined as a white problem, we're saying, oh, we're finally saying, you know, in stark contrast to what we said in response to crack, maybe we should meet people with treatment instead of police. That's the narrative. Uh, large parts of it are true. But the war on drugs is not softening. Uh, yes, mandatory minimums are coming down. But in other ways... I think what's happening now is the greatest intensification of the war on drugs that America has seen in, in, in a generation. This is largely in response to fentanyl, synthetic opiate that's all but replacing heroin in most areas and is much more dangerous than heroin. And with so many people dying, lawmakers are just desperate to do something about this. And they're finding solutions that, that are not solutions. One of these is more law enforcement. So there's something called the drug-induced homicide charge or death by distribution that's really taken hold in a lot of states in the United States that says, if you give someone drugs and they pass away, you're not going to jail for possession or trafficking. You're going to jail for murder. You're going to jail for a very long time. And this is not used against drug kingpins or, I mean, it is, but not, not very often. There's statistics on this that shows that's a lot less than 50% of cases. That larger majority is examples like, say, a couple, a girlfriend and boyfriend go out to score drugs together. They use them together. One wakes up and the other doesn't. Now that other is going to jail. And two brothers uh, are using drugs. One goes out to score, comes back. His brother doesn't wake up. Um, again, he's going to jail for murder. How often is this charge being used? So it's, it's not in every jurisdiction yet. The, you know, Pennsylvania has really embraced this more enthusiastically than any other state. But the Drug Policy Alliance has put out a couple of reports on this now that shows that it is spreading and prosecutors are using it more, more often as time goes on. I don't want to give stats because they'll be wrong, but, but I can say with certainty that there are stats on this. Uh, the Drug Policy Alliance has a couple of great reports. If you Google drug-induced homicide, Drug Policy Alliance, you'll find them. Um, it shows the numbers are going up every year. And it's people like those examples that are going to jail. It's really troubling. And I, I have two other points I want to touch on before we kind of move on to how this story gets told in the media. And one of them is your book ends with the pandemic and, and how that is impacting the opioid crisis. Talk to me a little bit about what impact the pandemic is having. COVID has been horrible for the overdose crisis. 
just before the crisis, just before COVID hit, for the first time in years, uh, drug deaths in British Columbia were finally dipping a little bit, uh, right across the United States, actually. 2018 was the first year that drug deaths declined in the United States in more than 40 years. So we were beginning to make a little bit of progress on this. And then COVID hit and they skyrocketed like we've never seen them before. Just a few years ago, it was 70,000 dead in the United States per year. Now it's more than 100,000. They've skyrocketed during COVID. And it's because of COVID. So number one rule of using hard drugs is never use alone, right? If you're going to inject heroin, have somebody nearby in case you overdose. And if you think back to the early days of the pandemic, what was the number one thing that we told people? Isolate. If you're addicted to heroin, that means use alone. We're telling people because of COVID to use drugs in ways that are incredibly unsafe and they're dying because of that. COVID has, of course, also exacerbated every sort of mental health challenge. I mean, COVID has been terrible for mental health. We're isolating, we're, you know, we're creating financial challenges that people are going to spend the rest of their lives recovering from. So it's a combination of things, you know, like the added stress of COVID and then um, sadly, you know, precautionary measures that work for COVID do not work for drug use. You just mentioned economics and finances, and this is something I wonder about with the opioid crisis quite a lot, was what role does class play here? I mean, we we know that anyone in any social class can, can become addicted, but how much of a role do you think class is playing in all of this? The biggest. I mean, I think inequality is, is probably the largest driver of the overdose crisis. Sometimes I get a lot of, in, in a lot of trouble when people ask me about the role that pharmaceutical corporations have played in the overdose crisis. Because uh, the narrative goes, you know, it's Purdue Pharma and, and Oxycontin that really sparked this thing uh, with overprescribing, and that's how everybody got addicted. Yeah, that's all true, but uh, I don't really care. <laughs> if it wasn't the pharmaceutical corporations, it would have been someone else. Because the root cause here is people are hurting. You know, the the, the American dream in, in Canada too is no longer not only not true for everyone; it's not even promised to everyone anymore. You can predict someone's height based on their area code more accurately than you can based on their genetics. And that's because of inequality. You know, this is not an equal society anymore. And that's causing a lot of pain. And, you know, again, we don't have mental health care systems. We don't, you know, in parts of the United States, we barely have education systems. And so a lot of people are trying to address that pain, self-medicating with opiates. It's such an interesting point and one that I just don't hear enough. And I, I, I do want to talk now about the mainstream media. I mean, this is a story you've been covering for a long time. It is one I've covered on and off. I found it a very hard sell. Why is this not getting more coverage? In your opinion, what do you see when you look at the trends in coverage here? Yeah, like you said, a hard sell. It's difficult to attract attention to, to a book about people who use drugs, especially, you know, like Light Up the Night, where people actively use drugs and don't, you know, don't pretend to be in recovery or anything like that. It's tough to get attention on, on 100,000 deaths a year because these are people who use drugs and our society throws them away. The Canadian media, especially the Vancouver media, is getting really better on this point, I think. I think that Vancouver media especially has done a really good job covering the overdose crisis and also done a really good job amplifying the voices of people who use drugs and portraying them in positive lights with activism stories and that sort of thing. But that's the exception to the rule. In the vast majority of North America, you know, the portrayals are negative. You know, the junkie on the street, there's always a picture of a discarded needle at the top of an article. And this is because of, this is because of stigma. This is because we don't care about drug users. And this to solve this problem, uh, we need to begin, we need to start with decriminalization. Because by definition, by a legal definition, if you use drugs, you're a criminal. So, so a criminal is our starting point for this conversation, right? And then that, that's, going, that's going to affect, you know, how journalists, how editors, how the public uh, perceive all of this. That's why I think it's so great that Vancouver and, and Toronto now and other cities are having this conversation about decriminalization. 
because while decriminalization will leave dangerous drugs on the streets, it will remove that criminal definition and I think remove a lot of stigma, sort of stigma that you're talking about with that question. And I think that will save lives. I'm wondering about you and your journey and all this. I know your focus is very much on the activists, but this is um, this is one of the biggest stories of our time. And you were right in the middle of it. And it is sometimes heartbreaking. How how do you navigate that? Yeah, this is tough stuff to cover. And it's been, it's been consistently heavy for a lot of years. I mean, it, it, it began in my community, right? I was living in the downtown east side. And I would be waiting for my bus in the morning. And there'd be a man on the ground next to me with a sheet over him. And I would come home from work. And walking into my apartment building, there'd be paramedics responding to an overdose on the ground outside my front door. The overdoses in the downtown east side were happening so frequently those years and are actually happening more frequently now that it was just impossible to ignore. And, and in my head, at least, like you said, became the story of our times. How am I coping through that? It's really actually, you know, stories like Louise's and like Jess's, as hard as they are in parts, that give me strength through this entire thing. And, and all the stories of, you know, incredible activism you find in Vancouver's downtown east side. For so many people in the thick of this, you know, they've had tough pasts and they, they share really hard stories, but they're, they're also sharing stories of, um, you know, incredible things that they're doing in response to the overdose crisis. You know, in Vancouver, it's drug users, people who use drugs who patrol the back alleys with naloxone, reversing overdoses, teaching people how to use naloxone. There's programs like Vancouver's Spikes on Bikes, you know, where, where people who use drugs take bicycles out around the city look for people who might benefit from that sort of thing. In the SRO hotels in Vancouver, you know, it's it's people who use drugs going door to door, distributing naloxone in, in, in those really shabby hotels. So there's those incredible stories of empowerment, the stories that I tell in Light Up the Nights. That's what keeps me going. It is a hopeful and an optimistic book. And I think this is really, really important work. I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast to talk about it. And thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.